Hello and welcome to Will at Warwick. My name is Tom Abbott and this week we focus on the Berliner Ensemble's production of Richard II from the recent complete work season at the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford-upon-Avon. Later we will hear from Dr Margaret Schering, author of a work focusing on Richard II, about her impressions of the play and performance. But first, Dominic Dean spoke to translator Catherine Ong and company manager Rachel Barber about how you approach the staging of a German production of an English play. The Berliner Ensemble's production of Richard II was the first foreign language production in the RSC's New Courtyard Theatre. Company manager Rachel Barber from the Royal Shakespeare Company told me about some of the issues the production crew had to consider when working with a visiting company. I was the visiting company's coordinator, so I sorted out all of the things that they needed before they arrived, how they were going to get here, um, all their transport, all their accommodation, anything that they needed in order to come comfortably and put the show on. It was a slightly tricky production to put on because in Berlin, where it had come from, it was in a Pross Arch house and we were putting it into the courtyard and it was one of the first visitors into the courtyard anyway. And we don't have a Pross, we have a thrust, so we had to take seats out and make a Pross theatre for them out of what we got. The problems of fitting the set into the new theatre could have been made more difficult by the language differences between crews. Rachel explains how they managed to resolve the problems. Language wasn't too much of a problem because we had five translators with us. It was vital because sometimes a piece of information would be passed and if it wasn't translated properly we could end up with the wrong piece of set in the wrong place. Catherine Ong worked with the crews as one of the translators. She explained to me what it was like working behind the scenes on such a significant production. It's very, very lucky um, for me to actually get a chance to see behind the scenes, specifically at the Courtyard Theatre, um, to see how the Berlin Ensemble worked and um, how they collaborated with the RSC. Um, and the production itself was quite dramatic in terms of its set, and so just seeing what went into to putting it all together was, was pretty special. There's a lot of moments of me just having to kind of hang around and get in people's way and shadow people and um, a lot of the time I did feel that I was kind of in the way but also I think our presence was definitely appreciated not so much because we were really needed but just as a kind of a safety net um, a lot of the stage crew um, in particular their English wasn't you know great and um, I think for the smooth running of everything behind the scenes it was vital for those quick moments to have that communication there. The fact that they were only doing four performances was quite a, a pressure. Um, the, the RSC crew seemed very comfortable actually. I, mean, I spent time with the, the lighting and the, the kind of automation people and they were very confident in, in how they were going about things. Um, just in terms of the sheer work that they actually did and the hours they put in to get that staged and everything sorted. I mean the director was demanding seats to be taken out at the last minute um, and lighting to be changed and things like that so it's it was quite an, uh, you know, a feat. I spent quite much of the production actually up in the gallery with the flying of the scenery. Um, at one point uh, a queue was given too early and I think that the throne that they had in place got caught on the back wall and there was you know quite a tense moment with a horrible noise and I think the, uh, the crew and the cast were quite worried that the whole back wall was going to fall down in the middle of the production. There was a lot of uh, swear words and I was there trying to translate between the two as quickly as possible to make sure that it was sorted. The production made use of surtitles to translate the performance from German into English. This raised some issues for the staging of the play, 
Catherine explains more. The text that the Berlin Ensemble used um, and have been using since 2000 was by a poet and playwright himself called Thomas Brasch and it's a very, very modern, um, quite stark text. Um, it takes the, the language right back um, and that in itself, while very interesting, um, I think was difficult to kind of get across in the surtitles and I know the RSC were keen to kind of keep some of the more Shakespearean language in there. From my point of view as a, as a linguist and someone who's very interested in translation, particularly literary translation, um, I found the surtitles very interesting and there was a lot of debate about using them. Um, certainly from the director Klaus Pyman's point of view, he didn't want them to detract from what the cast were actually doing on stage. From the RSC's point of view, they wanted them to be visible and understandable to to a you know a British audience essentially. When they were putting the surtitle boxes in, uh, in fact, I was involved in having to go and sit round in different seats to make sure that sight lines were were available. And I think there was a lot of resistance from the from the Berliner Ensemble to have have the surtitle boxes in certain places because they didn't want to detract. But at the same time, obviously, the audience need to see them. So, what impressions of the performance did Catherine come away with? What the, the Berliner Ensemble does very well is. It kind of has these dark moments juxtaposed with the light moments. They they get kind of almost a grotesque um, aspect um, to the play. Certainly, the the moments with the gardeners in their orange stockings and their powdered faces, um, and the mud that was used was very effective. Um, and also uh, physically, when Richard was smashing the mirror, and there was a lot of quite strong strong moments there. The mudslinging in the play proved to be a concern for Rachel Barber as well with the real risk of the paying public leaving covered in dirt. We were worried about the audience, but in fact, none of the audience ever got mud on them. They obviously slung it very carefully. Now, our main problem was that we had matinee and evening performances, and we had to get all the costumes dry-cleaned in between. Now, in Berlin, obviously, being a big city, it's easy to find dry-cleaners. In Stratford, we only have one dry-cleaners, and they couldn't turn the costumes around in time. So, in fact, our own wardrobe department had to just wash them, and it was fine, luckily. Despite the mud, Rachel was pleased with the success of the performance. We'll definitely remember it. It was such a pivotal performance, and a lot of people have taken it away and held it to their hearts. Dr Margaret Schering is the author of Richard II in Performance, part of the Shakespearean Performance series published by Manchester University Press. With the series divisor and founding general editor, Professor Ronnie Mulrine, Margaret has worked as an assistant general editor on 15 volumes in the series. In her own volume, she discusses the early performance conditions, as well as the political and historical context of Shakespeare's play, before turning her attention to more than 20 productions from the 17th to the 20th centuries. We asked Margaret for her thoughts, both on the Berliner Ensemble's production and on the play, as it returns to the repertoire of the Royal Shakespeare Company in July 2007, in a new production directed by the company's artistic director, Michael Boyd. Michael Boyd had been working on productions of Shakespeare's history plays for a number of years, before he became the artistic director of the Royal Shakespeare Company. And indeed, it was his own three productions of the three parts of Henry VI that opened their new, if temporary, Courtyard Theatre in Stratford-upon-Avon during the ambitious and exciting Complete Works season, a season that included the work of notable companies from abroad, as well as the RSC's own performances. In such an ambitious season, it was perhaps not surprising that a history play would be chosen for the first foreign language production by a visiting company in the new Courtyard Theatre space. 
The choice of company, too, was significant. The founding of the Royal Shakespeare Company itself was, I think, indebted to, among others, the inspiration and working practices of the Berliner Ensemble. And so it was extremely fitting that work from that company should herald this new chapter in the RSC's work for the 21st century. The Berliner Ensemble was, of course, founded by Bertolt Brecht and Helena Weigel in 1949. And although the company has changed somewhat, they are still working with the legacy of their shared, popular, politically and socially sensitive ensemble policy behind everything they do. This production, directed by Klaus Peimann, had been in the repertoire of the Berliner Ensemble since 2000. And it's not surprising, I think, that when Deborah Shaw was looking for productions to include in the Complete Works season, that she visited the Berliner Ensemble and wanted to incorporate their award-winning Richard II. One of the great strengths of the Berliner Ensemble's production is that it is not merely a literal translation from Shakespeare's English into German, but rather its script was remade in German. Indeed, it is a contemporary adaptation by the poet Thomas Brasch, which has an edgy urgency that relates to social and political issues current at the millennium and into the early 21st century. As many countries and governments are debating the nature of authority, including where and in whom authority should be vested. A sense of displacement, both linguistic and physical, was, as I understand it, an issue for Brasch himself. Although he now lives in Germany, he was born in Yorkshire, where his German-Jewish communist parents had fled from Hitler. Subsequently, Brasch was exiled from East Germany to West Germany in 1976. His play about Richard II, so successfully staged with the advantage of the full range of performance languages and the influence of the working practices of the Berliner Ensemble and their dramaturg Jutta Ferbers, was then retranslated from Brasch's script into the English used for the surtitles, largely, I believe, by Deborah Shaw herself. The production was staged in the Courtyard Theatre for four performances only, from the 16th to the 18th of November, 2006, and met with unanimous critical acclaim. Shakespeare's play, written in the 1590s but set in the late 1390s, during the final years of the reign of England's last medieval king, is, even within Shakespeare's own work, unusual. It is formal in structure, written entirely in verse, featuring noble characters, engaging in public debates about power and authority. The formality of Shakespeare's play was, I think, translated by the Berliner Ensemble into an equally formal, physical style of performance. Depending upon a monochromatic set and a schematized presentation, which made the issues of power as black and white as the costumes worn by the players. And as the issue of power itself became controversial, mudded, corrupt, so throughout this production, the set and the costumes too become quite literally mudded, soiled, dirted by the discrepancies between the ideal and the physical business of running a country. Ralph Berry, writing in 1977 about directing Shakespeare's Richard II, describes the play as the most dangerous, the most politically vibrant play in the canon. It is, as you will know, a play about usurpation and regicide. It depicts a king surrounded by advisers and favourites whose power is understood to be that of God's representative on earth, so that any challenge to that power is, by default, a challenge to religious as well as secular laws. When a powerful faction led by Bolingbroke challenges Richard's conduct in what they contend 
is a misuse of his authority. The outcome will inevitably influence the lives of individuals and a whole future conduct and governance of their country. And it is indeed this challenge that is the sole focus of Shakespeare's play. For the performances in Stratford by the Berliner Ensemble, a proscenium arch-style set was placed about halfway down the courtyard's own thrust stage. This brought the production in a literal sense close to the audience, an audience sitting in front of the performers, not on three sides, in a format that allowed the actors to present the play as if presenting a debate, presenting an example of what happens when power is flawed and abused. The proscenium arch opened into a white box which surrounded three sides of the performance space. Within this, a rubberized, shiny, black, steeply raked floor had white lines painted onto it, running almost parallel to the sides of the set and receding towards the back of the stage, almost forcing the audience's perspective to look at the point at which the throne should be placed. When the throne is moved, the set opens again to a space behind the throne, a personal space for Richard himself. The white walls were punctuated only by rectangular windows and doors, barely perceptible when closed, but when opened, allowing on-stage spectators or sudden intruders to be framed against a black void, viewing the spectacle and passage of those in power, but viewing it from a safe, contained, dispassionate distance. The nature of the set, of course, forced Richard into an unfriendly, harshly critical public space, a space that became increasingly uncomfortable as the performance progressed. Uncomfortable both in linguistic terms, but also in physical terms. As in a number of other productions of Richard II, Klaus Peimann had decided that he needed to explain the crucial murder that triggers the play's action, but that takes place before Shakespeare's play begins. This is the murder of Thomas, Duke of Gloucester, the controversial murder, apparently ordered by Richard himself, that unsettles the nobility and ultimately unseats Richard himself. In this production, as the audience come into the auditorium, they see a body wrapped in almost transparent plastic sheeting, stained dark red to one side of the stage. This is dragged off unceremoniously at the start of the performance. It becomes clear that this represents the body of the murdered Duke of Gloucester, as in a reversal of Shakespeare's opening scenes, the audience are invited to witness the grief of Gloucester's widow, as she complains of what has happened to Gloucester's brother, the aging John of Gaunt. This harsh, bleak opening was, I think, complemented by the choice of costume. The costumes seemed to belong to a post-Second World War period. They were not specific to a particular era, or indeed to a particular place. Rather, the actors had long coats, Western business-style trousers, and sometimes trilby hats. For the king, of course, there's the plain property crown, which is complemented by white makeup, reducing the features of the main characters almost to masks. The dangerous presence and influence of Northumberland, by contrast, is then signalled by his reddened eyes and his physically large presence in a very close proximity to those he chooses to manipulate. The reviewer of the production for the Times Literary Supplement, Eric Griffiths, responded positively to this astonishingly resourceful production, which he felt negotiated the tied tongues of exile with consummate skill. 
Certainly the production had a Brechtian clarity, and yet for all its harshness, it was faithful to Shakespeare's play in avoiding having on-stage violence until the very last moments, until the regicide itself. One of the problems encountered by the Stratford audience in responding to the play may also have been a problem of responding to the surtitles, perhaps because of the unfamiliarity of the language. Emphasised by the use of surtitles, the audience was sometimes slow to respond to moments of grotesque black humour, almost moments of burlesque. Moments that were picked up well by Terry Grimley writing in the Birmingham Post, who was struck by them, by those moments which conveyed a sense of the ridiculous, the absurdity of power, which at the end of the play saw a Bolingbroke, now Henry IV, left to hose down the walls in a final image of surreal tragicomedy, before he can, in turn, present his public face to the people, a face already tarnished by the acts of usurpation and regicide. When Shakespeare wrote Richard II in the 1590s, Elizabeth I had been on the throne for many years. She was childless, and there was considerable concern about what must inevitably be a handing over of authority on her death. Elizabeth had been on the throne for almost 40 years. Inevitably, factions had developed. There were some critics of the way in which she ruled. There were some critics, indeed, of the fact that a woman was ruling in what many perceived to be a man's place, and that she, as a woman, was ruling as if by divine right, in the position of God's representative on earth, just as Richard II had seen his own role in his own time. A number of courtiers in the Elizabethan period had become concerned that Elizabeth was holding on to the throne simply too long. One of these was Robert Devereux, Earl of Essex. Essex was linearly descended from the plays Duke of Gloucester. In 1601, Essex was to lead a rebellion, albeit an abortive rebellion, against Elizabeth I. And indeed, it's thought that a special performance of a play about Richard II, just possibly Shakespeare's play, was specially commissioned by Essex's supporters for performance on the eve of that rebellion. Much of that is critically debated, and it may be that it wasn't Shakespeare's play that was performed. What is clear is that it was the company of players of which Shakespeare was a member and shareholder who were invited to put on that special performance. It is also clear that Elizabeth herself understood the affinity between her reign and that of Richard II. Indeed, in a document recalling a conversation between the Queen and her keeper of records, William Lambard, she acknowledged the affinity very clearly. I am Richard II, know ye not that? Elizabeth was particularly sensitive to issues of usurpation and regicide. She had, after all, signed the order for the execution of Mary Queen of Scots. Interestingly, Mary Queen of Scots had herself likened her own position to that of Richard II. I think what's important here is not the play seen as direct political propaganda for the Earl of Essex, but a sense of correlation certainly indirect correlation between the play and issues that were topical in the 1590s. When Shakespeare wrote Richard II, an anonymous play about Thomas, Duke of Gloucester, and his murder, Thomas of Woodstock, had been popular on the stage. 
Other writers, too, had focused on the reign of Richard during those years. And so when Shakespeare's play takes on the life of Richard, it is inevitably controversial. Early quartos of Shakespeare's play didn't include the deposition scene. Whether it was omitted, whether it had not even been written, or is never quite clear. What is clear is that no version of the play printed during Elizabeth's lifetime included that deposition scene. Equally, the play is described as a tragedy in the early, early quartos, the tragedy of Richard himself. By the time the play is reprinted in the first folio, it is printed as a history. For Shakespeare, writing in the 1590s, he was exploring with his audience issues that affected them all, issues of where the very roots of majesty lay. In philosophical terms, E.H. Kantorowicz wrote 50 years ago in, in 1957 a book entitled The King's Two Bodies, a study in medieval political theology, exploring whether right and authority was vested in a person or in an office. More recently, Mary Axton has written about Elizabeth I taking into account the Queen's two bodies. To what extent was Elizabeth the source of power? To what extent was she a figurehead? Other similarities between the two reigns include, of course, the wars with Ireland, the great distraction, the drain of funds that takes Richard away from his country, and equally provided a dangerous political trigger in Elizabeth's time. Ultimately, I'm not sure that Shakespeare was writing merely about late 16th century politics. What I think Shakespeare was doing was exploring through his play the very nature of the presentation and conduct of authority. And so the emphasis throughout the play, Richard II, on the language, the formality, the rhetoric of kingship, mirrored by the process not of becoming king, but of giving away all the trappings of kingship to the next king, Bolingbroke becoming Henry IV. The need for the transfer of power to be legal, to be formal, for it not to be vested entirely in military intervention, but in the willing transfer, in a public place, of the office and all that it entailed. All of these elements seem to lend themselves absolutely to a dramatic exploration using the full range of languages of theatre. And it's this aspect of the play, the element of role play of monarchy itself, that has drawn many directors to it. For example, John Barton returned to Richard II with the Royal Shakespeare Company on more than one occasion. In 1973, he explored with two different actors, Richard Pascoe and the late Ian Richardson, the transfer of power and the relationship between Bolingbroke and the King at crucial points during Richard's life by asking the actors to alternate these two key roles from performance to performance. It's the element of play acting, of playing the king, that Deborah Warner focused on in a production of the play at the Cottesloe, the studio theatre in the Royal National Theatre in London, in which Fiona Shaw played Richard, an exploration that, of course, by its very casting, opened up the debate between Richard and Elizabeth, the gender of the role, without spelling it out. Deborah Warner allowed the person of Fiona Shaw, playing alongside David Threlfall as Bolingbroke, two performers 
who in physical terms were made to appear very similar, to mirror each other's actions, to be wary of each other, to present themselves or not in the appropriate roles of authority, whilst negotiating with the powers of the land. It is that element of role-playing that a number of directors have continued to explore, seeing not just the attraction of power and politics as an issue, but the very sad destructive element that power has on an individual's personality, as they have to come to terms with their very public persona. After the Second World War, major theatre directors across Europe were drawn to Shakespeare's plays as a way of exploring, perhaps at a safe distance, issues that were inevitably critical as Europe rebuilt itself, renegotiated countries' relationships with other countries following the war. So, for example, Jean Villard, the actor and director, opened his Avignon Festival in 1947, staging Richard II. What an extraordinary play to choose to play in French at the opening of such a significant festival. And yet, of course, Richard II himself had a great affinity with France and was indeed married to a young French queen when he was murdered. Similarly, again post-war and in an attempt to rejuvenate post-war theatre, Giorgio Strehler opened the Piccolo Teatro in Milan and his very first production was Richard II, this time in Italian. Subsequently, directors, including Ariane Manushkin with the Théâtre du Soleil, became even more aware of the international negotiation of power. Her production, devised in 1981 and played in a new French translation, was devised during the rehearsal process. She allowed her company to find an appropriate performance language and what they found became based on oriental theatres specifically a Japanese influence. Not only as a way of distancing themselves from the somewhat remote content of Shakespeare's language and play, but also of giving a particular new theatrical understanding to the trappings and then the stripping away of those trappings of power, as Richard is stripped of his divine right. The place of this play can in itself be part of a sensitive negotiation at significant, sometimes celebratory, festival events. The Royal Shakespeare Company have been drawn to cycles of history plays, perhaps from the English tradition going back to 1951, where in Stratford productions during the year of the Festival of Britain opened with Richard II, in that case starting a cycle of performances of history plays to Henry V, not the full cycle perhaps, but at least the tetralogy. The RSC, when they became the Royal Shakespeare Company, chose to play the whole of the cycle of the Wars of the Roses in 1964. Since 2000, the company has been working through the histories, as if trying to use them as a way of negotiating the new millennium and its influence into the 21st century. Stephen Pimlot directed Sam West as Richard II in The Other Place, before The Other Place was closed to make way for the new courtyard theatre space. That staging was in itself restrained, in itself a single set, presented to an audience. The audience seen as steeply banked spectators, as if in a courtroom, a parliament, or perhaps even in a church, listening to a debate about the nature of power and nationhood as it was presented to them. Since the turn of this century, it's not just Stratford, 
but numerous theatre companies that have been drawn to present again the cycle of plays including Richard II in seasons which look at regime change, changes of power, looking at the extent to which power affects the ordinary individual, issues that are as current in our present politics as they were for Shakespeare. The companies that I have in mind here include, for example, the Almeida Theatre Company, for which Ralph Fiennes played both Richard II and Coriolanus in the Gainsborough Film Studios in London before they were closed. A vast space in which power was presented both in terms of usurpation and regicide in Richard II, but also through Shakespeare's Coriolanus in terms of military power, exploring the extent to which a military figure assumes the right to rule, or at least to dominate a political debate, simply because he is the best soldier. To what extent does the role of being best soldier facilitate a whole class structure, a whole governance? It's a debate that is constantly current, and the best productions keep the meanings of the plays constantly current. Brecht and the Berliner Ensemble had themselves seen the importance of Shakespeare's writing in the analysis of the military power displayed in his Roman plays. Brecht presented his own remaking of Coriolanus. More recently, in 2003, Mark Rylance, the artistic director of Shakespeare's Globe in Southwark, brought both Richard II and Coriolanus into their regime change season. For Richard II, the use of elements from what were understood to be Shakespeare's own stagecraft and working practices inevitably allowed the parallel between Richard's reign and that of Elizabeth I to inform an audience's response, while at the same time looking back on the past through 21st century eyes. Such productions underline the lasting relevance of Shakespeare's plays, not staging them in a way that draws attention necessarily to any precise modern identification with every moment, but rather allowing the plays to speak for themselves, perhaps with the safety of distance, certainly with the supreme value of opening the debate yet again. It's a value that was identified by Sir Ian McKellen when he played Richard II for the Prospect Theatre Company in the late 1960s, in tandem with perhaps another appropriate play in terms of factionalism and favouritism, Christopher Marlowe's Edward II. What Sir Ian noted was that when the, the company played these plays in other countries, particularly in Czechoslovakia, at a time when politics was indeed a very dangerous debate, they didn't need to set the play in Czechoslovakia. They needed to play the play as it stood the audience understood the correlations without them being spelled out. Sir Ian writes movingly about the audience's audible response to the language of Shakespeare's play at the moment when Richard is caressing the very earth, the soil of England, on his return from Ireland. In Sir Ian's words, the response in the audience in Czechoslovakia shifted from silence to the plash, the gasp, the scuffles, the mewing, he goes on, I have never heard it since, an audience crying. They were grieving, I understood, fool that I had been, because Richard's words could have been their own. When their land was invaded recently, when sticks and stones had been pelted at armoured cars and tanks, when the earth was their only symbol of a future freedom or a continuing past.
the next edition of Willow Warwick, we will be speaking to Dr. Laurie Maguire of Magdalen College, Oxford, about a new book on Shakespeare as a self-help guide. Until then, goodbye.